This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. When you say myths that might blow your mind, what that makes me think is you might be sitting here thinking, that might be heresy. Like, <laughs> I mean, if I'm going to blow up a Christian, a common Christian myth, that might feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> but we'll be in it together. Good morning, I'm Angela, and welcome. I would like to add my warmest, refreshing greetings to Diva's awesome job. And we are kicking off a series called Myths We Believe. And we're going to take a couple of super common things that it sounds good. It sounds like the Bible backs it up. It sounds like it's just good common wisdom. And we're going to pop that balloon. (laughs) We're going to actually play around with why we believe these myths. And I love this graphic too. I think it's visually beautiful, but also... It points to a truth about myths that we believe, because there are always all kinds of myths that just seem ludicrous to us. And I'm not going to use an example because it's possible that I will say a myth that you're like, wait a second, that is true. (laughs) So I'm not going to use any examples, but there are like ludicrous myths. But then the myths that we actually believe will have a certain body of evidence that goes with them that makes them appear to be true, just like this unicorn. If you take off the little tiny horn, there's a whole body of evidence that we have met this creature before, that this is a believable creature. But the horn makes it like, hmm, I don't know about that. Same thing with the myths that we believe. There's a whole body of evidence that makes it feel true and look right, but it isn't quite right. And so today we're going to talk about one of those. And I I just want to pause for a moment and, and say that part of the reason why we can talk about myths versus truth is because any myth that we believe that is a myth or a lie is going to be destructive in our lives. It doesn't matter how much you believe it. If it isn't true, it is destructive. A couple of weeks ago, my husband, Jason, was having horrific... I had just been sick, and then he had gotten sick, and we were trying to help him, and everything we did wasn't working. And it took us about 24 hours to realize he was having a massive allergy attack. So it, what felt like bronchitis was actually his first ever encounter with asthma, but he, had, he didn't know. And what felt like uh, a head cold and congestion cleared up right away when we treated it like allergies. It doesn't matter how much you believe something to be true. If it's not true, it won't be helpful. And so Jesus talked about that. I just want to read a verse real quick. He was talking to the religious people of his day, and they were believing that they had, because they had been raised in a religious setting, that they were free. And he had said, I want you to follow the principles that I am laying out for you because, and this is John 8, 32, I believe. If you will follow the principles that I'm laying out, you will discover that they're true. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's the deal. These myths, they are destructive in some way, shape, or form. So we want to take a myth, pop that bubble, and put a truth in its place. That is our attempt every single week in this series, is to be set free. And every lie or myth is only spotted often by its outcomes. So the format that I'm going to use this morning is to lay two things next to each other, and we're going to follow the train of thought that comes out of these two seemingly similar things, and where they lead is going to help point us back to which one is the myth. So to the whole point about there's a body of evidence that would make us believe that's true, I just want to play a little game real quick. Do I have any Price is Right fans out there with me? Yeah? 
My first babysitter watched Price is Right every day, so I just have this deep affection for this show. So if you wouldn't mind, could we do a little audience participation? I promise I won't call you out at all. But to this whole point of there's a body of evidence that makes it believable, I would like to do a spot the celebrity. So Lorraine, if you wouldn't mind, we are looking for Zac Efron. Is he on the left or the right? Okay, good job. Start out with an easy one. All right, we are looking for Selena Gomez. Left or right? Oh, not quite so certain about that one. Right. She's on the right. Okay, we are looking for Beyonce. Right or left? Actually. Oh, yeah, right. Sorry. You're right. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) Well, how does that not trip me up before that? It helps that Jay-Z is in the background. Like... You got a little hint on that one. Okay, we're looking for Bradley Cooper. Wow, you guys, I had to study this one for a while and then read the article that went with it. He's on the left. The guy on the right showed up at a famous event and tried to walk the red carpet and got caught. Like, that is gutsy. That is gutsy. All right, we're looking for Bryce Dallas Howard, the star from Jurassic World. Left or right? Actually, the left. That's Jessica Chastain on the other side, also a celebrity. So technically, if we're spotting the celebrity, you get both. But the Jurassic World star is on the left, okay? Last one, Ed Sheeran. I have no idea. I know. (laughs) I couldn't figure it out. I have absolutely no idea. But they are both real people, and that guy is such a fan of Ed Sheeran, and Ed Sheeran has been spotted, like, that they have a friendship now. How cute is that? Because you've got a doppelganger out there. Um, Okay, so using the same idea, I'm going to make two statements, and then we're going to see if we can figure out which one is the myth and which one is true. So let's juxtapose the idea, is God offended by my sin, or does God hate sin? They don't sound that different. And actually, on first glance, like the word hate, can I even associate that with that? Like, they don't seem that different. What I would like to do today, and bear with me, I'm going old school, like Sharpie on a paper. (laughs) But what I would like to do is build a train of thought based on each of these things and see where it leads. And I'm sure long before I'm done, you're going to spot the myth, like, no problem, it's totally okay. For those of you that are note takers, there is a paper in your program. If you want to write this stuff down, it's quite a bit. So I have created a slide that Lorraine is going to show after I'm done drawing this thing out. You can just pull your cell phone out and take a picture. Like save yourself some hand cramp. Um, okay. So since the theory, um, since the theme behind this is sin, I'd like to define sin for just a second. And you probably already have an observational definition of sin. Like, when I do this, it feels terrible. When I do this, it hurts people. Like, yes. The Bible's analogy for sin is actually an archery term. Sin is anything that doesn't hit the mark. It's anything off the mark, which is why you can see why we would say sin is anything that's not perfect. Anything that doesn't hit the mark. We're very familiar with this sensation. And the truth is, that definition (sighs) explains why. (laughs) Explains why we encounter quite a bit of sin in our world. So this morning, as we go through this myth versus truth, what I would like to do to just help us get a clear picture in our head of how this actually works in our day-to-day lives, 
We are all each unique, and we might be plagued by very common sins amongst us, but the truth is it's just easier to picture what I'm saying if you can get a clear picture in your head of something that you experience. So I'm going to put up a list of choose-your-own-adventure sins. This sounds like I'm taking sin not that seriously, but I am. It matters. So sin is anything off of the mark, and we're going to choose your own adventure. Lorraine, do you mind putting up our little list of sins to choose from? You will find something familiar on here would be my guess. Would you take just a minute, read through them, pick the one that you're like, I can picture that in my life. I know what that feels like. I know how it works. This is familiar. Maybe just a little whoop when you picture sin. Okay. (laughs) They're all familiar. Ah. (laughs) Okay. Have we generally got one that's like, I can picture what that looks like in my life. Have you got one? Can I get a nod? I can see you. Do you know that? Can you nod or you got a sin? Okay. All right. So with that, let's start with God is offended. There's a couple of ways that we respond to this idea. If this is the belief that we hold, an obvious outpouring of this is I feel shame. A few weeks ago, Ron described the difference between guilt and shame. And the truth is, if we have just missed the mark, we are carrying with us guilt before we even consider whether or not God is offended or God hates sin. Guilt is just there. Shame is the idea of like, here I go again. Like, not just I made a mistake, like, this is so typical me. So it's very common to respond to this idea of God being offended with the idea of shame. Which then, because it's a whole perpetuating cycle, I'm sorry for those of you that are sitting right here, you're, sorry about you. Um, our um, a natural response to this, like, especially the concept of here I go again, I've done it again, is a helpless feeling of, I can't seem to stop this. I, and that's a familiar feeling for us, for sure. But the natural response to that is a sense of hopelessness. I have tried to stop this behavior over and over. That's why we actually believe this is so typical me. That's a very common response to the idea of God being offended by my sin is shame and then hopelessness and helplessness. The next response to that, and I'm sure you have experienced this at some point, is just a shutdown. Why do I even try? Like, I have burned myself out trying to make this thing stop. And then the natural response to that, this is very sad, is just a sense of being doomed. For some of us, that's just a doomed, like, I can't keep trying this. And for other ones, it's like, oh, my word, my eternity is in trouble because I can't seem to get this thing out of my life. This is a very natural progression when we believe that God is offended by our sin, is shame. This next option is my most common option. You... The more I speak from this stage, the more it's like, I'm sorry, you really get to know my sins. But you'll recognize this is a common theme I talk about a lot. lot. If God is offended by my sin, the most natural response for me is to hide. I don't want to be next to him. I don't want him to see this. This is mortifying. Is to hide. And my personal response to hiding, and I see it commonly amongst those of us that like this option. By the way, the story of the Garden of Eden, I don't know if you've heard that story from the Bible, but it's the story of the first human beings. When they made their first mistake, they physically hid from God. Like, hiding is very common. The response to hiding is often self-reliance. Can I get any kind of amen from my... Dude, the heart behind self-reliance is, I'll be right back, God, once I get this under control, right? 
it'll be okay to hang out again. We can be back together when I clean up my own act. The natural response to that is distance between me and God. Emotional distance, mental distance, prayer distance, sometimes distance from other Christians. I don't want them to see this about me. It's a natural response is to feel distant. You're starting to see, I imagine, it's not hard to spot this pattern. This idea that God is offended by my sin causes some angst in us. And I want to follow one other train of thought because we're not all wired up the same. So just because this is my most common one, some of you might experience this other idea, which is based on God being holy. God is perfect. He's never off the mark. He's always good, always holy. So we feel the sense of other, like that's I, other. And I would go one step further. It's not just like, okay, he is unique and I'm unique. It's the other that actually lands with a sense of unworthiness. I'm not just different, I'm worse. And that goes a step further. This is one of the most painful ones. Oh, maybe just to spell it. Is that God and I are incompatible. He is holy. I stink. He is perfect. I've done this again. What in the world do we have in common between us? Which again leads us back to a sensation of distance. I gotta keep my distance. I, I, honestly, and this might seem silly, but I bet if you press in, you have felt this at some point as well. Honestly, this one leads me to think that my sin is actually contagious to God. Like, I'm going to corrupt him in some way. And I know, like, intellectually, I don't have the power to do that. Like, I know that is a thing, but I feel so full of shame. I want to hide. I mean, I, I vacillate between all of these. These probably feel fairly familiar to us. It is part of the condition of interacting with our sin. But the end result, no matter which path I take down this path, is doomed, distant, and distant. I'm going to guess this is the myth. (laughs) I'm going to suggest that this is not leading us towards a place that the truth will set you free. If that's our litmus test, if what God laid out for us, if the principles that God teaches is going to set us free, I feel no freedom in this. I feel a heaviness literally just looking out on you guys. You can feel a heaviness of, yes, I have experienced this. This is my reality quite frequently. I'd like to point out just, um, Lorraine, if you want to pop up that screen, I had to do it a different way because it fits better on the screen going sideways, but you still get the same idea. The outcome, when I say that a lie or a myth can often be spotted by its outcome, the overarching outcome of all of these is disgusted with myself. That is not freedom. That doesn't add up. That is a natural response to sin if the way that we view sin is that God is offended by it. Disgusted with me is the natural outcome of that. That does not seem like freedom. I would like to just point out, because our relationship with God works a lot like our relationship with other people, I would like to just point out that there is a fear underneath each of these. And for whatever it's worth, it's just fun. Lorraine, there's a slide for this one too. This one is a fear of God's disappointment. He's disappointed in me for doing this. This one that has self-reliance right at the heart of it 
is a fear of God's frustration. I've asked for help before. I obviously squandered his help because here I am doing the same sin again. That's why I need to get my act together before I can come back. It's a fear of God's frustration that he might just give up on us and be done. And then lastly, this one is, I think, the most insidious. uh, Oh, I cannot talk and spell. I'm sorry, friends. It's a fear of God's rejection. We might feel unworthy, but the fear underneath this is that God thinks we're incompatible, that he doesn't want to hang out with us. This myth, while seeming not that different from God hates sin, is like night and day. This myth eats us alive. I know sin is causing all kinds of damage in our world, for sure. This response to sin is compounding sin's problem. So I would like to offer an alternative. This one is just funny to me because I feel like, can you even associate the word hate with God? And it's a little bit dangerous to consider this because I sin all the time. If God hates sin, that feels dangerous because sin is like stuck to me. Like I can't get it off. So this one feels a little bit dangerous. But I would actually like to start from a different perspective on this one, because while this is the truth, there is something underneath this that we often forget. It is something that God said about himself. I am love. Not just I do love. I am love. In 1 John Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So I'm actually going to start this. Guilt is still down here. I've still made a mistake. It's still yucky. I still feel gross. But underneath this God hates sin, there is an even bigger truth that God is love. And from that framework, I want to build a couple of different trains of thought that will lead to a very different outcome. Popping this myth and returning it with the truth is a totally different outcome. So this one is predicated on an analogy that our founding pastor, Ron, has used that I just think is brilliant. This is this is supposed to be the part where we feel hopeful, but I'm going to go sad for just a second. How many of you have a loved one or yourself have battled cancer? Someone in your immediate world has battled cancer or is battling cancer. Is it fair to say that you hate cancer? Yeah. Like a little boiling pot of disdain for that disease. Like hate cancer. I love this analogy of viewing sin as cancer. That cancer is actually attached to the person. It is in and around flesh that is very real us. Sin is the same gig. You have a sinful nature. It is in you. It is part of you. But just like we can look at sin that is part of our loved one and we can hate that sin in a visceral way. Sorry. Hate that cancer (laughs) in a visceral way. But never actually get confused with, do I hate her that's fighting the cancer? Like, there's no confusion. It is very easy, even though they are physically connected. It is very easy to divide those two and hate the cancer and love the survivor or love the fighter. No problem. Ron's analogy holds a lot of water to me, that it is not hard to fathom that God would hate sin and have zero trouble with us. Zero trouble, even as we perpetually sin. 
So I'd like to take a couple of different paths down this one too and see how they come out. I believe when God watches sin happen, watches us choose sin, watches sin in our lives, that one of the responses that he has is compassion. You and I feel helpless to do something about this sin. Our loving father can look at us and say, I'm sorry about you. I'm sorry that's part of your plight. That was not part of the design. I wanted you to walk in freedom. And the life of sin that is part of our earthly world, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Coming out of compassion from that framework, God is love. He feels compassion about our sin. It is the most obvious thing in the world that God wants conversation for the purposes my default setting is to think that God's wants conversation to say to me, honey, can you please stop this? This is not working for you. That's my default. But I believe that in this framework, God wants conversation for the purposes of offering us empathy. Displaying to us that he understands our battle. I think this is for the purposes of empathy. Oops. Really cannot talk and do that. I think another response that God has to this is that he grieves on our behalf for our pain. Do you grieve your mistakes? Like deeply grieve your mistakes. This stinks that this happens. I believe God does the same thing. From a framework of love, God grieves our pain. God grieves that struggle. And out of that, I believe... I'm just going to do this to save us all some time and spelling. I believe God wants conversations for the purposes of offering support. Again, from this framework of love, what builds off of that is a partnership. What builds off of that is not, please get your act together. Please pull it, you know, pull it in. Suck it in. Come on, we can do it. I believe it's compassion and grieving for our pain. And then lastly, another response, supernatural response from this framework is that God, sorry, uh, wants to help. God wants to fix, right? That's a super easy thing when we look at our own sin to think God wants to fix it. I think when you start from this framework, the most natural response on God's part, being a loving father, is that he wants to help, which also leads again to God wanting conversation for the purposes of fighting together. Out of this framework, well, a couple of things these all have in common. The last one, the thing that they all had in common was a fear. And then that led to a disgust of self. One of the things that all three of these have in common is a proximity. I tend to view my sin as a toxic waste dump that stands between me and God. And I can't walk through it, and I can't clean it up, and I can't go around it. And it's like, even when I try to go around it, it's like that picture whose eyes always follow you. (laughs) Like, I, still there. Like, it's still just always there. When I see this picture, it obliterates the toxic waste dump. I am no longer afraid to be next to God. I no longer feel corruptible. I feel like he understands me. I feel like we have things in common. I desire proximity with him. 
All of these other ones led to a desire of distance. When we work from this framework where God hates the sin, I would say one step further on this one. God hates the sin because it hurts me. There is no sense of disappointment in me because of my reoccurring sin. There's no sense of, is he going to run out of like grace and forgiveness or patience? There's no sense of that at all. He can stand in time after time after time. Can you even imagine a heart space in which your friend has a, um, a remission of cancer and then again is battling cancer and you're like, dude, we've already been down this path. I've already delivered you meals. Like, no. <laughs> That would never happen. Again, your heart would respond. If anything, you would be more compassionate the second, third, fourth, fifth time around. Deep compassion for the battle that they're in. From this framework, this idea of God hates sin because it hurts me. Based on the idea of a loving father, the the end result of these paths, it doesn't matter which one you take, lands with a proximity. I want to get next to God because I can feel that God wants to get next to me. He wants to help. He wants to offer support. He wants to fight together. He wants me to know that he understands what I'm battling with and he's here. I'm not alone. I'm empowered to fight this because I have an expert on my side and I have an unending support system. I think one of the most beautiful things about this idea If I could actually function from this place where I believe that God is love and that God hates sin because it hurts me, the most natural response of any of these paths is the ability to forgive myself. Oh, my word. You want to talk about truth that sets you free? I don't believe God has any trouble forgiving our sins. I don't believe he does at all. You know who I think has a really big problem forgiving our sins? You know it too. I can see, I, I can see you and you're nodding. Us. Us. So tough, isn't it? From this framework, if this is the truth that I believe, you can feel freedom in here. You can feel relief. There is none of that sense of hopelessness of, okay, it's going to happen again and again. We have self-grace. We have the ability over and over and over again to forgive and to move on and to believe the best. It's a beautiful thing. Lorraine, do you mind showing them in case you want this one? This is this one, but just sideways again. God hates sin because sin hurts me. So for those of you that have a church background... This might be the point where it feels a little bit heretical. (laughs) Because I don't know about you, but even in just preparing this conversation, I had a whole bunch of Bible verses that were like, wait a second. Like, where did I get that picture of the toxic waste up? Like, where did that come from? Where does this myth that God is offended by my sin come from? Well, I don't know where your path came from. Like, I'm not sure how you got to that conclusion. But... I would say most of us believe that is what is the truth because we have either heard some Christian that we respect say it because it's a natural response inside of ourselves so it feels true or because we have Bible verses that we can quote that make that sound true. I mean, I encountered some that were just in the preparation of this conversation where it was like, oh man, I have to go back and actually reconsider that Bible verse 
because it seems to point straight back at that myth. But when I take that train of thought further out, the outcome is present, not freedom. So I'm doing something wrong with this Bible verse. Something is off here. So for those of you with a church background, if you've got verses that are like, well, what about this? Well, what about that? I'm not going to solve that for you. (laughs) I am going to encourage you to press into that. So I would like to give you a couple of litmus tests that have been super practical and helpful in my life when it comes to these myths, not just this myth. But when I am living out a thing that I believe to be a biblical truth and it is bringing burden and pain and anxiety and exhaustion into my life, these are some of the litmus tests that I go back to because it's really hard to argue with the Bible. It's really hard when you feel like the Bible is saying this, it is really hard to be like, are you sure about that? Like that's a super difficult skill. So these are some of the things that I use to find out how can I tell what's a myth versus the truth? One, I've already said, I didn't even put it up here, but if it does not lead to freedom, we probably don't have it right. Even if you can quote a Bible verse right at it. If it's not leading to freedom, bells and whistles should be going off of caution. But here are a couple of others. Does it line up with the Bible? Do I find evidence in the Bible that this thing that I'm believing is a God-ordained thing? Does it line up with who God says he is? That was one of the key elements of this truth, was we needed to go underneath it and say, who does God say that he is? Now, God wears a whole lot of different roles in our life. There's lists in the Bible of him being a counselor and a judge and a father, and he has all kinds of roles. Nothing that is in the Bible. So first we start with the Bible, but if I am interpreting a Bible verse and it isn't coming out to match up with something that God says that he is, I got to go back. I got to go back. Something is off here. Nextly, does it line up with how Jesus acted? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. If you watch the way that I act, if you listen to the way that I think, if you follow the principles that I lay out, you can trust that that is who God is, even though you can't see God. So when we read the stories of Jesus and we see him interact, when he talks about his philosophies, if Jesus did not act in a way that I am acting, even if I have a Bible verse behind me to back it up, I need to ask some tough questions of myself. And then lastly, does it hold water in real life? And maybe that seems a little heretical right there. Like if there is a Bible verse and I am acting it out and it is super hard and it's not producing freedom in my life to actually question my interpretation of the Bible based on my Actions seem scary to me when I first begin this process. So to me, I use all of them, not just one of them. So if I try to interpret a Bible verse and live it out in my life and it's not working, I don't just ditch that Bible verse. Like I go back up to the top and I work my way through it. But as we talk about these believable myths, we're only going to cover four of them. There are plenty of places in our life that things are not working for us. This is just a helpful list of how can I find out if this is the truth that is meant to set me free. If it's not working in my life, these are some questions that I can ask. So for those of you with a church background who are like, I know some Bible verses that make me think God is offended by my sin. Sin does create distance between God and me. That is a natural response of sin and a holy God. If you have some of those, I would would just challenge you. Let your mind ruminate on these kinds of things this week. It is such an incredible conversation between you and God. It is a fun exercise. So as I wrap up, what's next? How do we apply this? 
I can't believe I'm going to say this, but sin is next. <laughs> that doesn't seem quite right. But statistically speaking, you guys, we're probably not going to hit the mark on everything this week. <laughs> so that when it comes to applying this conversation, all you got to do is be you. All you got to do is be you. After sin happens, after you miss the mark, pull out your cell phone, see if this holds water. See what happens in your conversation. See what happens in your self-forgiveness. See what happens. Will this truth hold water? You can totally come back to me. You know where to find me. If it doesn't hold water, push back. I'm telling you, I am only talking about things that I am attempting to apply in my own life. So if you hit a fallacy in here before I do, you come warn me. That's just kindness. That's just kindness. That's what's next. That's how we apply this. Pull the myth that isn't working, that is destructive out and put the truth in. I'd like to pray for us this week. We're going to go out and wrestle with sin. This is the reality of life this week. I'd like to pray to bless you this week. Do you mind? Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> God, uh, this journey for me has been one of terror, actually. To get to this moment where I can feel confident that you are not repulsed by my sin it was a terrifying journey to begin with. And I don't know who's in this audience. I don't know if they walked in the door and this second truth just resonates with them right off the bat. Maybe that's a different journey than the one that I had. But I have a feeling that there are people in this room that even with no religious background still have a sensation that a perfect and holy God cannot be anywhere near fouled up sinners. I am praying for my friends. If I thought it was even possible, and this is a lack of faith on my part, maybe, that if I thought it was even possible to just obliterate sin out of their worlds this week, I would do it. It just eats us up. But if we cannot be perfect in this lifetime, the next best thing is that we partner with you in a process of self-forgiveness that allows us to be refreshed moment by moment by moment. I know that's your desire for us. I know that you have a place for guilt, but you have zero place for shame. Guilt is meant to draw our attention in. And I believe if we will pop this myth and we will put a truth in the place that the guilt will actually draw us safely into your presence and then safely into freedom. I pray that you would give my friends freedom this week. Forgiveness a refresh button that is unlimited, just bloop, 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 one after the other as often as we need it. God, I pray that you would bless their hearts this week with the freedom that only you can bring. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.